Let's rock and roll. Let's do it, sir. Okay. Today, I'm joined by the man, the myth, the legend, Dr. Bill Warner. Now, Dr. Warner, how are you today? I'm doing well. I don't think I've ever been introduced as a legend, though. This should be interesting. <laughs> well, I tell you what, that's absolutely wrong. You are a legend in this field, without doubt. I would say you and also a gentleman called Douglas Murray, by far and away being the greatest. Oh, I always wanted to meet him. Yeah, amazing. You two have been the greatest influences on me understanding Islam. But you were the light bulb moment. You were the eureka moment. You're the one that just got, ah, oh, that's what's going on. So I, I'm <laughs> eternally indebted to your work. So thank you so much. Well, thank you for caring. <laughs> of course, of course. And I think what would be best, really, is to start with the title of your Twitter handle, Political Islam. What is political Islam? Well, political Islam is a term that I coined soon after 9-11, which is the World Trade Tower attack in 2001. And that I realized that I lived in a country, the United States, which has very rigorous freedom of religion laws. And so that we would never get anywhere by attacking the religion of Islam. And also, we have to be fair here, I have no problems with the religion of Islam. I don't care if they pray five times a day towards Mecca or don't pray at all. Or, well, I mean, the religion of going to heaven and avoiding hell, the, the prayer of the five pillars and everything, I just don't care about it at all. That's not my problem. And I realized that what I had the problem with Islam was the way it treated me. And so I coined the term political Islam because I'm definitely outside the realm of religious Islam. And so that, that was the background of the coining of the term political Islam. Because I, I, I define political Islam as the part of Islam that deals with the kafir, the non-Muslim. And a large percentage of the Quran is about you and I, not about the actual Muslim, is it? Well, I think that would be surprising to most people to understand that, you know, when you read a Buddhist sutra, for instance, it's all about how to be a Buddhist. But when you read the Quran, it's mostly about the non-believer, which is a little strange if you think about it. And by the way, everything it has to say about the unbeliever, the kafir, by the way, the word kafir is the true Arabic word instead of infidel. And I use the word kafir to make it sort of pop off the page a little more and cause people to think a bit. But the whole business of that it deals with the kafir is the only part I care about. I mean, think about it, it's sort of a selfish attitude, but what do I care about the relationship between a man and his God? What I care about is his character and his ethics. Yeah, for sure. For sure. I think that's a great issue, isn't it? The fact that so much of Islam is concentrated on how to treat you and I, and certainly we're um, seeing the reality of that situation right now. Well, it is, because some of the ways they want to treat me is I object to. For instance, I object to the Sharia in every part. So, uh, and also just don't, the, by the way, the kafir, the, un, the unbeliever, the infidel, is described in the Quran, and it's terrible. We can be tortured to death. And we're also lower than animals and we're filthy. So I sort of object to that. That's the part of Islam I object to. Yeah. Well, that's a total, totally rational objection, let's say. One of the things you, I suppose I've referenced it before, that eureka moment. One of the things that you really explained to me and made so much sense was this whole concept of dualism within Islam. The fact that they could uh -huh. say, you know, one thing which is negative, one thing that's positive but it's all Islam. Can you just uh, elaborate on that concept a little bit, please? Well, first off, this was a problem to solve. And it was like, because Islam, every, everyone I presume has met some nice Muslim who seems to be as nice as anybody else you'll ever meet. And then we've also seen, if you're on the web at all, Islamic State killing people in orange suits. And you go, well, wait a minute, <laughs> which one is the real one? But as I read the Quran more and begin to sort it out and literally sort it out. I went through the Quran, which was on my hard drive, 
and started sorting it into what I would call the good, bad, and the indifferent. And it became very, and what I call bad is when I'm called upon to be tortured, killed, or otherwise described as lower than an animal. And I realized there were two sort of piles of paper on the desk once you sorted the Quran into those, and that they contradicted each other. You have your religion and I have mine, let there be no compulsion in religion, all these other nice verses. And then you discover, well, they also say some things later which are not good. Now, there is a technical term for this in the Quran called abrogation, and that says the latter verse, the one that is nearer to you in time, verse. Well, it was that describes the Quran, but what I discovered also was that when you read the Sirah, the life of Muhammad, it too divides into two parts, good and bad. And the same with the Hadith, his traditions. There are some traditions which are like fine, and others which are very ruinous to my health. That is, it calls for me to be killed. And so most people try to resolve this issue. My background is in physics, and in particular quantum physics. And in quantum physics, we, have, we study what we call dualism, in the sense that an electron can be either matter or it can be energy. And you get what you look for. If you're looking for an energetic electron, you get that. If you're looking for a physical electron, you get that. But which is it real? Is it energy or is it matter? The answer is yes. You get what you look for. And so it's the same with Islam. Is the real Islam the good Islam, or is the real Islam the jihad Islam? And the answer is yes. So instead of trying to resolve it as a physicist, my, I embraced it all and just said, look, it's all Islam. It's just different varieties of Islam. So I don't try to say one is good or better than the other. It's just they're both Islam. Now here's the power of it. Islam can speak to you with the voice of love. In other words, we're all brothers or it can speak to you in the voice of jihad, which is, let me assure you, not love. And they're both equally valid. So therefore, you have this Jekyll and Hyde relationship. Does that work in England, the Dr. Jekyll and Mr. Hyde? 100%, we know what you're talking about. Okay, sometimes, you know, uh, one of the greatest of Englishmen was Sir Winston Churchill, and he said the United States and England were a culture divided by a common language. So sometimes I'm not sure if, <laughs> And we, so I want to make sure that I understand, you understand me when I talk. But anyway, so we have a Jekyll and Hyde relationship, and which is the real? Yes, they're both equally real, and you can use them when you want to. It's like you have a sink with hot water and cold water. Is the cold water more real than the hot water? We don't ask that question. We just say, what do we need? Do we need cold water or hot water? So it's the same with Islam. It has a vicious side. It has a loving side. Which one's the real one? They both are. You use the one you need when you need it. Very practical, really. Mm, indeed. Well, I think you might have answered my question I'm about to ask you now with the last bit of that statement. As a practicing Muslim, how do I know what part to adhere to? Like, has it got something to do with strength in numbers? Like, would I practice a certain part of Islam if my Muslim population was a little bit more dominant in a certain country? But if it was less prevalent, would I be slightly more reluctant to practice a different form? Well, Muslims, of course, are people, and usually what I talk about is ideology, mm -hmm. which is Islam, that is, ideas. But Muslims being people, they have the same social impulses that we do. That is, when I was younger, if I got into mischief, it wasn't when I was hanging out at the Sunday school class, it was when I was with mischievous kids. We're all influenced by our surroundings, and so, so are Muslims. Can you explain the different variants of jihad, please? Uh, say again, please. The different variants of jihad. So you've got, you know, the the violent jihad. You've got a, a political jihad. You've got a, you know, all these different attempts. Oh, I suppose the, the, the different, 
There you go. Different kinds of jihad? Indeed. Okay. First, let's get something out of the way. Jihad does not mean holy war. Jihad does not mean war at all. The Arabic word for war is harb, not jihad. So jihad is an effort. And, a, and we all, if, if Hitler had written his Kampf was his struggle, if he'd have been a Muslim, he'd have written mein jihad, not mein Kampf. So it's a struggle and an effort. This effort manifests in many ways, and the Quran lays them out. There's the jihad of the sword, which is what most people think about. Now, that is not the most ruinous form of jihad, as a matter of which, oddly enough, you'd think, well, what could be worse than cutting off your head? But for a society, there is something worse than being cut off your head, which is to implement Sharia. So we have the jihad of the sword, but then we have jihad of speech and writing and jihad of money. Now, by the way, the jihad of money is called forth in the Quran many, many times. It says that the man who gives the money to the jihadist for his horse receives the same benefit as the jihadist who uses the horse. That is, buying weapons of war, you get as much credit as you do if you actually commit the war. So, and by the way, this business of giving money for jihad or Islam is very useful and very powerful. I sat in a mosque in Southern California and watched, there were 50 people in the mosque, and a man came by to pitch a form of jihad called lawfare, we call it in America, that is, hassling people such as myself with ruinous lawsuits. The lawsuit never amounts to anything, but the preparation to go to court spends a lot of your money and energy. He, in that group of 50 people, he raised $18,000 in five minutes. That's quite generous if you think about it, because remember, there are many more mosques he had to go to. So Islam is well-funded. And this manifests in many ways. I live in Tennessee, and if I wanted to run for Congress and convert it to Islam, I would have a big political war chest that is a lot of money to spend, because Islam believes in jihad of the dollar, if you will, practices it, and it works really well. You may, I'm sure this doesn't happen in England, but in America, you can influence people if you give them money. <laughs> no, I've never heard of such a concept. Well, in America, we have it. <laughs> And it works, let me assure you. I bet it does. I bet it does. Now, I never knew about the fact that if you were, you know, the financial jihad, the money jihad, the fact that you would get the same kudos, let's say, as if you were actually committing, a, you know, an act of violent jihad. Because the mujahideen, if they go and commit uh, an act of violence in the name of Allah, they are closer to him up in heaven than just the average practicing Muslim. Am I correct in that? Yes, they are. And let's measure how much closer they are. Mm. Every Muslim suffers two problems. Suffering of the punishment of the grave, which is, un, which is some sort of suffering you commit even though you're, you have, even though you're dead. And then there is the other punishment, which is uncertainty of judgment day. Even Muhammad said he wasn't sure which way the judgment would go for him. A jihadist who dies as a martyr does not suffer either of those two things. He goes directly to heaven. Well, that says that you're a better Muslim. And indeed, the Quran says that the jihadist is a better Muslim. Now, this business of using money to, for jihad is included, by the way, in one of the five pillars called the zakat, which is the charity tax. Every Muslim is supposed to give money in the zakat to, for charity. This charity is used for many things, and one of those is for the financing of jihad. So jihad is built into the very idea of money in Islam. When the more you study Islam, the more you realize it is an extraordinarily practical device and ideology. That is, it's really it works well because it's designed to work well. Yeah.
indeed. Now, over in England, there's a, a huge prevalence of halal food. You know, it's not just in Islamic butchers. We're getting in all our standard supermarkets as well. Now, the proceeds to go to, or should I say the funding or the process of actually getting halal certification, would there be a percentage of that money that would be used as a cut and be siphoned off into, I don't know, potentially nefarious activities? Yes, indeed. You see, you see the cleverness here. They're making you buy halal food, and then the portion of that goes to help collapse the society you're living in. Very clever, very ingenious. Islam, let me describe Muhammad here. Muhammad was the most brilliant warrior who ever lived in the entire history of humanity. No one in England killed anybody today for Napoleon, Alexander the Great, or Caesar. But somewhere in the world today, somebody died because of Muhammad. Muhammad created a perpetual machine of war. And this machine of war, which I call civilizational war, has an attribute of everything in the Sharia can be used as for power. And you've just described one of them, halal food. But we also have the hijab, or the burqa, can also be used as a weapon of ideological war. In America, we have Muslims who come and they say they want to be a sales clerk, and they show up without their, they're a woman, and they show up without the hijab. Once they get the job, they then one morning come in and say, well, I've decided to wear my hijab because I'm a little more spiritual person. And so now then the store, which before was just selling goods, now advertises Islam. And this is a, who would have thought that a headscarf could be used as a weapon of war? Here's another weapon of war that's used by Islam. In America, we're beginning to see the event that on special occasions, Muslims take to the street, commandeer the street, and play and pray in the streets. Now, some people say, oh, well, that's the right. It's a religious freedom issue. Prayer is religious. Commandeering the street is a criminal act. Do you follow the difference? Pray all you want to, but that doesn't mean you can stop traffic. So here we have taken prayer and made it an element of war. Very ingenious, superbly ingenious. Indeed, indeed. Now, is there another form of jihad with um, immigration? Is it called the hijra? Am I pronouncing that right? Yes, you've got that right. Let's summarize Muhammad's life very briefly. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> After he became the messenger of Allah, he preached the religion of Islam for 15, no, for 13 years in Mecca and persuaded about 150 Arabs to become Muslims, many of him family members. He left Mecca at the insistence of the Meccans because he was a contentious man, and he went to Medina, whereupon he became a politician and a jihadist. Now, I'm not making this up. This is clearly written in the Sirah, his biography. When he died, after practicing this new form of Islam, which was political Islam and jihad Islam, when he died, every Arab was a Muslim in the peninsula. So let's review this. He preached the religion of peace for 13 years, was barely successful at all. When he went to jihad, he was enormously successful. So therefore, we see the two faces of Islam. You can have the, the nicest face, or the religious face, or you can have the political face and the jihad face. So this is the basis of the Islam and what we see in its two different manifestations. Indeed. Because over in Europe, we've been subjected to uh, you know mass Islamic immigration, and there's been a, a huge shift in <laughs> political thinking as well going over here. I'm sure you're well aware of Gert Wilders, the very successful Dutch politician. He ran a great campaign, came second. You also had the same with a lady called Marine Le Pen as well over in France. Over in England, we had the whole Brexit thing. 
And then the main political party that led to that was a party called UKIP, the United Kingdom Independence Party. Now, we had a woman running for the leadership of that called Anne-Marie Waters. Now, Anne-Marie is by far and away the most vocal politician being critical of Islam. Now, the day before the leadership election, she was installed as the bookie's favourite. She was evens to get in, you know. And the next day, miraculously, someone else has got the job. So that was very, very strange. But do you over in America see what's going on in Europe politically and take kind of like heed from what's going on? And that would impact your political system. We do indeed. Matter of fact, we take some hope in what we're seeing in, in Europe. By the way, let me finish my answer to the first part, which had to do with the jihad version of the Hijra. Sorry. That is, notice that Muhammad, well, I've finished, so you, there's no way for you to be sorry there. What happened was Muhammad's success came after the migration. In the story, remember, he, was, he had very little success until he migrated to Medina. Now, this is overwhelmingly important because the Hijra precedes the implementation of Sharia in the mindset of Islam. So here we have, once again, the genius of a civilizational war in which migration itself is an element of war because the purpose of Islam is to put the Sharia in place, not to convert Kafirs into Muslims, although that's nice that they can do it, but just so that the Hijra establishes the, the uh, well, in your case, the halal food, for instance, the whole business of the Sharia. But... So Hijra is what brings Islam success, that is, the migration. Now, in America, I, my families were immigrants, but they were persecuted and poor. And so that's what most people think of when they think of migration, is poor people who are being persecuted. But in Islam, the element of migration itself is an act of civilizational war. So, but now then back to what we see in Europe. We are very heartened to see that people like Le Pen, and for instance, we just had in uh, Germany over 100 members of the AFD, which is the German Freedom Party, are now sitting in the legislature. Uh, in the Czech Republic, Babis, who has stated he does not want any migration. And then we have in Austria, we have two, the, out of the top three finishers, two of them are devoted to being anti-migration. So... We see a great deal to take hope in Europe. It's like Europe is finally waking up from a deep sleep. I think Eastern Europe is. Now, I was actually talking to a gentleman ah. about this earlier on today. Now, let me just tell you something about the infrastructure in, within England, especially. For the last maybe 10 years, maybe a little bit longer, we've had a lot of Polish people, a lot of Romanian, a lot of Hungarian people come over to England to work as our wages here are far better than what they can get in their home countries. Now, these guys, you know, They've worked, they've integrated into society, but what they've also done as well, they've witnessed what's been going on with the whole Islamic migration and they've rejected it. So these people who have witnessed it firsthand over in England have gone back to their home countries and just categorically said, no, we have seen what's happened to England and France and Germany. We're not letting this happen in our home country. So that's why they're so adamant because they've witnessed it firsthand. You know, there's another reason that plays in the deep background here. I go to Central Europe twice a year because I have an organization in Europe, the Center for the Study of Political Islam International. And so the audience in America when I speak is usually older, but when I speak to audiences in Central Europe, they're younger. And so I ask, I says, what is this? They said, ah, <laughs> remember, where you are now is behind the Iron Curtain. We've seen tyranny and, and authoritarianism. We know what it's like, and we see Islam as being communism with a god. So they're taking their historical learning and applying it to a new situation. And one of the people talking to me, his uncle was killed by the KGB. So for these people in Central Europe, the 
tyranny is not some hypothetical could happen, but they've seen it happen in their own personal lives. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. It makes a lot of sense. So yeah, I think with the combination of the two, I think that's why they're so adamant. You've seen the photos or the footage coming out of Poland at the moment. It seems like the whole country is unanimous and not having it. And then the EU chastises them as though they're a bunch of bigots or something. You want to preserve Poland? By the way, I hope I don't step on your toes. My trips to Europe have persuaded me that I am not for the EU. I'm for business relationships between countries. But when you try to tell another country what they can grow in their crops, what they, who will be their citizens and what their laws will be, that just goes a little too far for me. I find that bureaucrats never serve the people. They usually serve themselves. Yeah. I think you're totally right. And I think that's why the British public have voted to leave the EU. And, and hopefully we, we get our way and that there's not going to be a second referendum where everything's going to be, you know, fiddled. And then we're stuck in the EU because uh, there's definitely a, a whole vibe going on within England at the moment of people are just having enough. Tell me more about that. There's like a contradiction between what we're witnessing in person and what our media and political leaders are telling us. And it just doesn't <laughs> make sense. It doesn't make sense. And I think that's what's leading to people like myself and alternative people to actually investigate and start raising their voice because there's just a lot of confusion going on. You know, we have the same problem in America. The media, the standard media, is very pro-Islam, very pro-migration. One of the things I see in the media is it doesn't reflect the actual reality on the ground. When I read the mainstream media in, in Europe, Merkel is very happy with the way things are and just, you know, says that all the... Germans need to do is sort of suck it up and stop being bigots and haters and everything will be fine. Let me give you an example of a couple of emails that I got. This is from an American who's an American, and he loves to go to the Oktoberfest. And he said, I don't even drink beer, but he said, it's a wonderful festival. He said, this year I've been, I've been going for about 10 years. And this year, the man whose hotel I stay at, it's a small family hotel, sent me an email and says, do not come. It is dangerous at night. My wife has already been assaulted. Now, somehow or another, the fact that a man who runs a business would tell somebody else, do not come to my hotel and stay because I'm afraid you'll be injured. So how does that fit together with Merkel saying everything is just fine and hunky-dory? It doesn't really fit at all. And by the way, I believe the man before I believe Merkel. Yeah, damn right. It, it doesn't work. It doesn't work. The sexual assaults that have been happening through Europe uh, have skyrocketed. And there's only one obvious answer. But as I say, our political leaders are refusing to identify the problem. And it's just confusing the public massively. Well, I think this is what's happened. And this is one of the things that happened with Trump in America is that the people just looked at the media and finally says the media is crap. And it just, so the media is losing its ability to influence people. And the reason is, is people who read what's in the media and they just go, I don't believe that. I don't think it's, I don't think it's happening that way. I talked with another group of people who was, uh, these were in uh, Vienna, and they were beginning to be afraid to go to certain parts of town at night. And I noticed that the, the French have brought armed troops into the, into the uh, country instead of just policemen, which means without them thinking about it is France is now literally at war. When you bring your soldiers into your home territory, you're at war. And I see that Sweden has decided they're gonna use their military to go into no-go zones. So here we have the Swedes who are on one hand saying, oh, multiculturalism is wonderful. We want all the Muslims we can get. And the other is they can't even send in the police. I can give you an actual story of this. A man from England 
paid money to have a le legislator come to e Europe so he could see a no-go zone. So here they are, they're in Brussels, and he's with an EU representative, and they start walking into a Muslim part of town. The man who was the representative is a former policeman, and he said, all of a sudden, I realized, says, we're creating a wave as we're walking down the street. People are leaning out windows, whipping out their cell phones. And then finally, we were accosted by a group of young men and who said, leave and leave now or you will be harmed. And the man said, I am a representative of the European Union. I'm an EU uh, officer of some sort. And they said, you're no longer in Europe. Leave now. Now, that's an ominous statement. You are no longer in Europe. What does that mean? They view the territory where they were in Brussels as their territory. And if you want to come in here, you better bring in armed force, not just cops with sidearms, but real troops. The day will come when we will see Beirut in Europe. Yeah. That's one thing that really irritates me, and that's a very kind word to use about Islam. It's whenever, you know, there was a guy I interacted with today on Twitter about it, and he was talking about, in a matter of time, your country will be Islamic, your, you know, the Houses of Parliament will be run by a Muslim as well, and hopefully there's a cathedral called St. Paul's Cathedral, a massive landmark within the UK, that will be turned into a mosque. And it's the fact that they want to come into a country and just change the whole infrastructure and everything about it. It's not about moving in and living with who the general population, it's about changing it to be Islamic. And that is something that I think anyone who is aware of this concept needs to refute and reject wholeheartedly. Well, what you're repeating is the same thing I said earlier. The perfect model of, of a Muslim is Muhammad. And after Muhammad migrated into Medina, the Sharia followed. Mm. And he's just describing what is obvious on the face of it. Is there's enough Islam now. Oh, by the way, I understand that uh, London is about half Muslim now. <laughs> look, you go to certain places in London and it's crazy. You look around and you see the demographics of the people and you think, where am I? And, and I'm not just saying that to be fear-mongering or to stoke the flames. I'm being 100% sincere. Now, I'm near North London. There's a very famous place called Camden Market. And I was there maybe a couple of months ago. And I played a little game myself. You know, spot the, spot the local person, spot the local man. And you couldn't. You couldn't. Everyone, you know, regardless of race, it's also the way they're dressed as well. You can see straight away they are not European. And you've got that there. And also the massive stadium in England, I'm sure you've heard of as well, Wembley. In and around Wembley, you don't see any white person. It's all just migrants. It's just so common within London. It's, it's mad. It's mad. And it's just, it's changed beyond repair. But look, but look, at the, look at the benefits you get. London now has a higher crime rate than New York City. Yeah. No, it's horrible. It well and truly is. It well and truly is. And you see it, you know, at a, a few places where they talk about Muslim no-go zones and don't drink outside a mosque. And yeah, it's crazy. It's crazy. I was actually working at a place once and I was talking to a Pakistani and um, somehow Muslims came up. It was in Luton, the place where Tommy Robinson, a very famous um, critic of Islam in the UK is from. And I was talking to him about it. I was like, oh, OK, so, you know, loads of Muslims around here. You must, you know, must feel familiar and da, da, da. And he leans into me and he whispers and he has no idea about what I do or my thoughts. And he goes, no, I left Pakistan to get away from Islam. And the Muslims here are 10 times worse than the ones back home. It is really scary. And I just thought, wow, I can't believe I've just heard a Pakistani Muslim whisper this in my ear. This is just crazy. Well, Canada wanted to bring about forms of Sharia law and who opposed it in Canada? Women from Iran, they said, we left Iran to escape the Sharia. Now you want to bring it here. Yeah, exactly. Why, why don't the political leaders 
take heed of ex-Muslims or people who have escaped the Sharia and its oppression. Why don't they listen to them? Because they, they are very loud, these people, you know, they're a very vocal minority. Why can't you listen to their perspective? Um, I cannot understand it. For instance, in my opinion, one of the bravest people in the world is those who leave Islam become apostates. Now, you would think once you left Islam that you would be able to say the truth of Islam. That is, it's like during the Cold War, if somebody left Moscow and came to America and was able to describe what was going on, you'd figure, well, this man knows what he's talking about. And yet our political leaders and our religious leaders and our law enforcement leaders all say, no, 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 those, he's just a bigot when he talks like that. In America, people do not argue the merits of Islam. If you argue, if you say there's things that you don't like about the Sharia, they just say, well, you're a hater, you're a bigot, you're a racist, you're an Islamophobe. They don't actually reason with you. They just call you bad names. You're an, you're an immoral person. Okay. So even the facts with, of the matter aren't even being addressed. Which is strange because you guys can see what's going on in Europe. Surely that should change the narrative a little bit, give you guys a little bit more understanding what's going on and not have this whole you know, overbearing leftist view and just think, no, hold on, there is an issue. There is an issue here. And you guys have still got the opportunity to stop it becoming more prevalent within North America. Whereas in Europe, I, th I think the, what's it called? The horse is bolted from the whatever, something bolted barn. I'm not too sure what the expression is. Well, the horse is already out of the barn. There you go, something like that. Well, we seem to be, one of the marks of a lack of intelligence is the ability, inability to learn from experience. And somehow or another, we are not seeing our, you know, it's interesting. You'll never hear anybody brag about how dumb they are. Everyone likes to think they're intelligent, right? And yet, somehow or another, somebody who thinks they're intelligent, and, and if you're an elected official, you must be smarter than anybody because you've got all these people to vote your way, and yet they're unwilling to learn. And because what happens in America is, is that if you oppose the Sharia, then you are a hater, racist, bigot. Now, there's pieces of it if you oppose, like, for instance, child, child marriage, they go, well, no, 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 we're not for child marriage, we're not for sex slaves, but that's not really Islam. So they have, this imaginary, they have this imaginary Islam, which is everything is beautiful, and anything which contradicts that, they just say, not that you're wrong, it's just that you're an immoral person, you're a racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe. I've been called every name in the book, myself. I bet you have. I bet you have. Now, no, I really, I have. <laughs> yeah, indeed. You're the one who introduced me to the racist, Islamophobe, hater, bigot expression. And also... Actually, I'm, actually, I'm on an official hate list. There's something called the Southern Poverty Law Center in America, and it is a left-wing organization that's worth a third of a billion dollars. And there are moral betters. And they've declared that me, personally, that I'm a racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe. And this is, out, this is put out on official reports. So, and, and by the way, people who know me would be interested to find that I'm called those things because actually I don't lie, I don't cheat, and I don't steal. Also took part in the Civil Rights Revolution in America, but that's no good. I'm now a racist. And by the way, what has race got to do with Islam? Can you answer me that question? Only ignorant people would ever say such a thing. But everyone who doesn't, if you, if you argue against something that is, that is Islam, they say, oh, you're a racist. Hmm. What the? What has race got to do with it? And I'll tell you what it's got to do with it. In America, the d dirtiest word you can call a man is a racist. Yeah. So therefore, they just throw that in as dirt. It has no reason for being. It's just that we're trying to hurt you and insult you. One of the things I like to say if I'm talking to people in public or friends like that debating Islam, 
I'd say, look, it's an instruction manual how to be a human, and it's not a good one at that. It's got a lot of bad things in it, so it's as simple as that. <laughs> Let's just reject it. It's not a good way to live your life. What I find is in, if, instead of defending Islam, I'll take out just a piece of it. For instance, uh, child marriage. Are you for child marriage? Well, no. Well, that's part of Islam. If you, are you for female genital mutilation? No. Well, that's part of Islam. Yeah. It may not be the part you think about, but it is part of it. Now, look, we were talking about the overbearing leftist media. Now, you produce alternative media, let's say. You've been, how long have you been active on YouTube for? I've been active, I think, for six, seven. You know, I don't know, but it's been seven or eight years. What happened was, the way I got into, I don't even watch television, okay? I'm not a media hip person. I have, I'm an old man at 76, and I do something which you've heard about probably and even seen pictures of. I read books. <laughs> you may have seen pictures of this. You yeah. may have even seen actual books. So I was reading books and writing newsletters, and a man came to me when I gave a talk one time. It was the first time I'd ever given it called Why We Are Afraid. And he said, can I video your talk? And I said, sure. Then when the talk was over, he said, can I put this talk up on YouTube? I said, sure. To myself, I said, a 45-minute talk on is the Islamic attack on Europe will never... No one will ever watch a 45-minute video. 100,000 people watched it in the first month. It's now had over 8 million views. And so I went, wait a minute. <laughs> okay. <laughs> I accidentally made a video, and I accidentally impacted more people than I've done with all my newsletters. And so I said, you know, I'm not a media person, but I think I can learn how to do videos. And so not knowing anything, I just jumped into it, made some very bad videos. But finally, I now I've got a little routine going. But I got into the video business because of an accident. Yeah, but then we'll analyze the data and saw it was great. Now, talking about that, actually, have you seen a rise in consumption of your material over the, you know, the period of time that you've actually been producing it? I have indeed. I think I now have 38,000 followers on YouTube. But something is happening on YouTube. I'm now having videos which have been up for years now being disappeared and taken down. In general, because of this list of the Southern Poverty Law Center, there are organizations which are now weighing in and they're opposing me. For instance, Google is an, is an, opposes me. Let me give you an example of this. I used to be, I coined the term political Islam, and it used to be that if you Googled political Islam, I occupied the first three screens. I mean, I dominated it. After all, I created the term, I have a website called Political Islam, and then all of a sudden, after two or three months ago, maybe three months ago, you, uh, Google actually announced a policy statement that those who criticized Islam would be depressed in the ratings and those who praised Islam would be elevated in the ratings. Now then, if you Google political Islam, two-thirds of my references are gone. So that is what I'm telling you here. This isn't paranoia. This is an actual measurable fact. So the web is no longer a level playing field. It is now biased against those who speak against, and by the way, it's not just Islam, it's any, if you're a conservative, you're depressed in ratings, if at all possible. So what we're having here is the left is weighed in, and for reasons known only to me, known not to me, Mark Zuckerberg of Facebook is a raving leftist. So as a result, Facebook now reflects this, this kind of thing. People are being thrown off Facebook, things are being taken down, I used to have at Twitter, I used to have a thousand new signups every month. Now then I get 300. And everything that I tweet does not go out to everybody. 
that's so very strange. That's very strange. Sorry to interrupt you there, Mr. Warner, but I don't know, Dr. Warner, should I say, but that's happened to Douglas Murray as well, the person we referenced at the beginning. Oh, really? Of this. Yeah, it's something called Shadow Band, he calls it. I, he was one of the first people I followed on Twitter. I've had this account running for about six months now. I haven't seen him tweet once. Not once has one of his messages come through to my feed. And a lot of people say this as well. He's aware, but Twitter are censoring his account. You can still follow it, but it's not being used or it's not being executed the same as everyone else. So when I tell you my story, I don't come across as a raving lunatic and a paranoid schizophrenic. Certainly not. No, no. We're, we're a part of that world, really, and, it, and it's very scary. It's very scary. Who would have, th who would have thought... Like th that the phone company would tell you, I'm sorry, we're, we're not we're not going to make that call for you because we don't like the politics of the person you're talking to. Mm -hmm. No, we can't have electricity because we don't like what you're doing with your computer, so we're turning you off. Yeah. I mean, will that come next? Well, no, the first thing they did was to stop um, the monetization of these videos as well. So whereas people would put their videos... Oh, I on lost all that some time ago. Precisely. <laughs> that, that, was the, that was the beginning of this, wasn't it? So first of all, we would take yes. away their revenue streams, and then we'll take away their videos, and who knows, at the end, maybe we'll take away their channels too. And that will, that will happen, I'm sure. And by the way, the Southern Poverty Law Center, which is the key player in this smear campaign in America, has stated that we're not just publishing hate lists. It is our business to drive these people out of existence. So it's not just, it, you, for years I've been on this Southern Poverty Law Center list, but nothing was done with it. And now then all of a sudden, for instance, MasterCard has called me up and said, no, they, didn't, they sent me a letter from a copyright attorney saying to take their logo down off of my website. Well, they don't know who I am, but they know that I'm on a list. And the official hate list is, is I'm a bad person. So therefore, they're beginning to put the squeeze on me that way. They don't want the MasterCard logo on there, but surely that's cutting off their nose to spite their face. Why would they care about your views if they're actually getting a little cut of transaction and making a profit? It's crazy to think that your content is more important than their profit. You know what? We have this, uh, we have this now in America where the heads of many powerful organizations are very, basically very progressive or left of center, and their politics comes before their company position. So these people are playing political games, and, and they view themselves as very virtuous, moral people. I mean, Mark Zuckerberg censors uh, his Facebook page, in particular in Germany. He was caught on an open mic, saying Merkel saying to him when he started to censor anti-migration work, and he says, yes, I will. And now then, when you talk to Germans, they're very suspicious of what they find on Facebook because they know it's not the whole truth. But no, businessmen, there is such a political bias now in business which says actually that business is pretty good because if business were not really good, they wouldn't throw me away. But it, all of a sudden now it's, and by the way, in America, we've always been rabid free speechers. Well, that's now being taken away because what they say is, oh, that's not free speech, that's hate speech. And how do we know it's hate speech? Because some official minority is offended. So hate is not anything that I do, it's just that someone doesn't like what I say and by the way, this is implementation of Sharia law. In Sharia, slander does not mean the statement is false. It just means it's something a Muslim doesn't like. I don't know how it is in British law, but I bet it's the same. A slander is a lie told to somebody about you. Not that you say that and it's true, but I don't like it. So now then we're implementing Sharia slander laws, which is it may be true, but it's offensive to the official minority. And by the way, I'm not on the official minority list. 
I want to talk to you about a list that you're on because you've referenced it a few times that the left have been, you know, beating you up a little bit and giving you some stick. How about, you know, Islamic groups? Have you had any threats for your life or, you know, multiple ones, any ones that you could... No, I have not. Really? No, I have not. My most vicious enemies are the left, not Muslims. Now, let's examine carefully what I do. First off, I never discuss Muslims other than I, as I have on this show in which I say, this is the doctrine that drives what Muslims do. I never personally call anybody out by name, so therefore I can't be sued on that issue because I'm talking about a legal system, political Islam. So even though, so I'm very careful in that way. And I also, if you'll, if you'll also read what I write and if you'll listen to what I've said here, I do not condemn Islam. Do I say that it's a bad thing? No, I just say that there's civilizational migration will change the society you live in to a manner that you may not like. So I'm very careful with what I say. I, and I never personally insult anybody, anybody. I also don't condemn Muhammad. Did I say Muhammad was a bad person when he went from being a religion, a preacher of the religion of peace to the, becoming a jihadist? I do not say that he was wrong. I just say this is what he did. One of the most well-known facts about Muhammad was he married a child who was nine years, six, and consummated the marriage when she was nine. Now, many people go ahead and say, oh, that he was a pedophile. I never, ever call Muhammad a pedophile. I just say he married Aisha at six and consummated at nine. I find that people can draw their own conclusions, and I don't need to draw it for them. So as a consequence, I'm a little hard to attack on the basis of being wrong about Islam or being a bigot in the sense of attacking somebody because I don't attack people. I just say they're fulfilling the law. Islamic State does what it does, and it's vicious but it is simply implementing the doctrine of jihad. And I don't say that they're bad, I just say that what they do is harmful to people. So as a consequence, most, many Muslims do not attack me other than to say I'm a, I don't know anything. That's the most, oh, you don't know anything. But then I've never been threatened with my life, and I think it's because I conduct myself in a way that's very carefully thought out. And when I talk to people, I, teach, I tell them, watch what I do. Do not attack Muslims ever, ever, ever. Just give the motivation, which is the doctrine of Islam. And so it's very useful. But now the left, since they know nothing about Islam, good, bad, or indifferent, except that anyone who opposes it is a racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe, they're the ones who insult me the most and, and are the ones who harm me the most. Google is not a, web, is not a Muslim enterprise. It's an American business, and yet they try to harm me. Indeed, indeed, indeed. I feel like you say that expression so much, it should be on your tombstone. Huh? Racist, bigot, Islamophobe, hater. Yes, well, I'm proud of it. You know, yeah. I, I figure if you got it, if you got it, flaunt it. I mean, how many people who do you know who will actually say, I'm an official bigot? Yeah. I mean, I'm one of the very few people you've ever talked with who, I can prove that I'm a racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe in a court of law. By how's that? Because the Southern Poverty Law Center says I am. They vote left, so therefore they must be true. Indeed. Well, Dr. Water, I still like you, regardless of all of those points. But look, what got me into Islam... Or Actually, started... I'm the nicest bigot you'll ever meet. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sure that's going to be true. I'm sure that's going to be true. But look, I got into Islam after the Charlie Hebdo shootings. Before that, I was a little bit of an apologist, let's say. If there was an attack, I'd be like, no, it's just you know one or two individuals. You can't blame the lot, da 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 but there was something about the response from the British Muslims. You know, you know, I'm sorry, I know you're talking about Islam, but for me, I was listening to a radio station. They kept phoning up and saying, it's horrible, it's horrible, it's horrible what's happened, but, and it was that but that did my head in, because they kept saying, but you cannot criticise the Prophet. So because of that, I started researching Islam, came across yourself, and I got informed. But for you, your introduction to Islam was through your 
passion and your love for religions. So yes. what was it like when you first started looking into Islam and when did you realize that there's a huge difference between Christianity, Judaism and Islam? Well, I was raised in a very religious family. We went to church three times a week, whether we needed to or not. <laughs> uh, my first job was going to be a, a, a minister, a clergyman. But I have a skill with mathematics, and so I became a scientist instead. But I, and I continued my study of Islam, and not Islam, of religions. I, I studied, for instance, uh, Hinduism. I studied Buddhism. I also studied a mystical form of Islam called Sufism. Now, this was the, I did this when I was 30 years old. One of the things that always fascinated me was the impact of religion on history. And so I just sort of had become a reader of books on history that involve religion. And so when I came to, uh, then what happened was I became a professor at a university and had many Muslim students. And they were slightly different to me in my, as I viewed them. And, it, and so I decided I would become much more familiar with what made them Muslims, which was to read it, the Quran cover to cover. Then when I read the Quran cover to cover, I said, whoa. Then I read the life of Muhammad, and I went, whoa. So what happened was, is that on, in America, the term 9-11 refers to the World Trade attack on the World Trade Centers. And I had predicted to people that we would be attacked by jihadists. And so when, I, when the planes hit the World Trade Tower, my phone began to ring off the hook with people calling me, how did you know this was going to happen? Because I said it would. Now, I did not say it would happen on September 11th. I didn't say it would be the World Trade Towers. I just said we're going to get whacked. Well, the reason I did this was, having read Muhammad's life, when Osama bin Laden, remember him? When he, when he called, when he condemned America and called America to Islam, I went, whoa, wait a minute. Muhammad always called his enemies to Islam before he attacked them. As a matter of fact, he had standing orders for his, for his, for his, for his generals to do that. So when Osama bin Laden called us to Islam, I said, well, it is Sunnah, it is the practice of Muhammad that we will be attacked. And so we were. So what happened was I realized I grew up in a country which didn't know a Hindu from a Buddhist, from a Sikh, from a Hindu, from a Muslim. And so since I had spent my life studying religious doctrine, I decided to study the doctrine of Islam. And that's what caused me to go not to other authors, but to Muhammad and Allah. I try to base everything that I say on Muhammad and Allah, not what some smart guy says who wrote a book. And by the way, one of the things that when I was studying Islam that, that leapt off the page of me were two things. How the Quran was basically a derivative work, that is, almost all the Quran came from somewhere else. And the other was how anti-me it was. So it's always been a puzzle to me how people who are not Muslims can stand up for Islam so much because they really don't know what's in the book. But Charlie Hebdo was your turning point. Without doubt. Without doubt. I just I couldn't believe that someone could pick up a, a pencil, have a piece of paper in front of them, draw something, and then people could justify their murder. I thought it was just crazy. And the fact that there was such heavy arms as well on the streets of Europe. Like, we don't have guns in Europe. We don't. And you've got people walking around with AK-47s. And there was a horrible photo as well of a policeman head down on the floor. And the guy just walks over him and just nonchalantly just puts a bullet in the back of his head. And I just, I, it wound me up something chronic. And as I said, just listening to people phone and be like, it's disgusting, it's disgusting, it's disgusting. But you could not criticize our prophet. Like, I was shouting in my car. I was saying, you know, pardon me, I was swearing, <laughs> saying, do you know what? We can, we can, how dare you? And it was that moment when I thought, enough is enough. I need to know what's going on. Enough of just saying it's one or two people because 
if it was one or two people, they'd be condemned by their community. And the fact that they're not and they're somehow justifying it, it did my head in. So yeah, Charlie Hebdo was a turning point for me. And also may I say as well, a lot of the people who I've spoken to, I think that was a massive turning point for a lot of people. Well, there'd be more turning points. By the way, it's been very interesting in, in a life in a, since 9-11. I've talked to many people about Islam. And you've described what turns you as Charlie Hebdo. Yeah. What you, it's interesting what turns people. One person said when he found out Muhammad didn't like dogs, he said, no man who doesn't like dogs can be a good person. <laughs> and the other was my accountant. When he found that Muhammad got 20% of the war booty, he said, wait a minute, 20% of the war booty? He said, that's not a religious man. So for him, it was the cut or the 20%. So it's just interesting what will sometimes cause people to go, wait a minute, that's enough. Exactly. And I, and I feel that pretty much everyone's going to hit that point, but at different moments, you know, it's going to take different triggers. But I do think everyone at some point will reach just that enough limit. Well, since Islam is a complete civilization, it means that anything from food to clothing to sex to... It, there's, a, there's something there that will cause somebody to realize, wait a minute, that's wrong. Mm, indeed. Now, talking about sex there, are you aware of all the child grooming scandals that we have going on throughout the UK? What infuriates me about them is not that they happened, but that the police knew about it and other authorities knew about it, or at least that's where the report we got in the news, and did nothing because they did not want to be bigots, racist, haters, Islamophobes. That is, here we have an official business cowardice. And, I mean, it just boggles the mind. Let me say something here. This is a personal judgment, but not against Islam, but against any government that cannot protect its innocence has lost its reason for existence. If you cannot protect the weak, then something is very wrong with your government. And who is weaker than a child? Now, that's, in, that's just infuriating, and it's wrong. I mean, I'm, notice what's happened here. I've not said that Muhammad was wrong. I'm saying that the Brits were wrong. The problem is not Islam. The problem is those who apologize for Islam. And they include, unfortunately, people in power and elected officials. Now, hypothetical situation. Let's say oh, that- Oh, let me ask you a question. Go for it. I've expressed to you my outrage. What is the, result, what is the response of the average guy riding the, riding the bus or the tube? It's changing to be honest with you I think it is changing I, th I think all of my friends and family agree with what I'm saying and my, my views I don't have one person who's saying oh you whatever 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 I'm not speaking to you anymore I've never experienced that to be honest with you um, one of my friends works for the BBC I've had a little bit of a debate with her back and forwards but the arguments they throw out are just so weak that you can you can rebuttal pretty much all of them and her last resort was but how do you feel about having those views as a white male and when she said that to me, I just thought, there's no point even conversing with you if you're just going to think, oh, there's no validity to behind my statements. I'm that kind of self-entitled white male. Do you know what? You can go do one. But I think the majority of people have just had enough, to be honest with you. Like, I worked uh, as a Christmas job a couple of years back, and it was in DHL, like, so a little career work, just for a couple of months. And I walked in there, and the majority of people, there are Eastern European. I'd say 50% are Eastern European, something like that. The rest are English. And I had some old boy, probably about... Yeah, you know, I don't know, you know, maybe around 60s, late 50s, 60s, can't see me. He just shook my hand. He goes, mate, pleasure to have an English person here. And he was only joking, but you see it so often now, especially with the jobs, you know, I, I've worked, which have been, you know, around the blue collar man. Yeah, a lot of people are just saying enough's enough, really. Enough's enough. But that's not being 
that's not being repeated in the in the mainstream narrative. I'd say on the ground, people are like not having it, but then we just hear it from our political media overlords, and there's no issue. Everything's hunky dory. The BBC, by the way, is especially egregious about its apologists for Islam. Uh huh. They certainly are. <laughs> that's without doubt. That is without doubt, and it, it needs to change. It well and truly does, but I don't know. Can can you see it change? What about over, we talked about it before over in America? Or it's the same thing from the mainstream. That there's no mainstream outlet that has views like yourself. Is there? The mainstream is the. We have one newspaper which could be accused of some neutrality, which is the Wall Street Journal, but other things such as the New York Times, the Washington Post, they're unabashedly apologetic for Islam. There is no evil that they cannot ex explain away. And their last resort is always think, you're a white male, therefore we know you're a racist, hater, bigot, Islamophobe. Why? Because we can tell that from your skin color. Uh, I'm always amused by people who think that I think this way because of my skin color. They don't say that I've got a brain. Someone other than America, your skin color, your skin is what does the thinking for you. Think about it. Yeah. No, it's crazy. And what a and what, by the way, she would never tell you that, oh, you're, if you were black, well, you just think that way because you're a black male. That's the other mark of their bias, is that they may accuse you of racism, but they would never accuse anyone else of any racism. For sure. For sure. It's crazy because, yeah, because as a white guy, they can get away with it. It's even like they refuse to identify the issue as well because we're talking about the grooming gangs before, but it's never Muslim grooming gangs. It's not even Pakistan. Well, they've recently changed it to Pakistani. Whereas for however long, it's Asian grooming gangs. Now, over in England, we know exactly what they're referring to. But an American must read that and be like, oh, what, all these Japanese people are going out committing rapes. It's, <laughs> it's crazy. Actually, we've learned the same thing. <laughs> but now, by the way, this business of not calling them by the right name is a historical thing that's been going on for 1,400 years. When the Muslims came out of Arabia attacking the Middle East, they called them uh, Saracens. They called them Arabs. When Islam invaded Europe and the Balkans, they called them Turks. When Islam invaded Spain, they called them Moors. We have always never wanted to identify who it really is, and it's Muslims. That's the problem. It's Muslims who invaded. They may have had the race of Moor or Saracen, but they were actual. What made them do what they do was the doctrine they practice, which is Islam. But so this this denial of who this who our enemy is is very old. Now, I'm going to bring in a well-known quote here from Sun Tzu in The Art of War. The man who does not know his enemy will never win a war. And in America, we officially will refuse to study the enemy. Our West Point, uh, which is a military school, Annapolis, which is a naval military school, they do not teach political Islam. They teach the same lame left in, lefty view of what Islam is, which is it's another one of the world's great religions. Do you think that will change in the next 50 years? Yes. Look, we have all the facts on our side. Now, people do not respond well to facts. We respond very much to feelings. because, But we do over time. Fact thinking is a slow thinking. Emotional thinking is very quick. That is, a person can become angry in a, in a split second. But to reason out a new mathematical theorem takes time. The facts are on our side, and then we will prevail. I have... I don't have any faith in the upper class. I don't have any faith in the elites, but I have a great deal of faith in the common man. Look, I was raised in a, my mother worked in a shoe factory, okay? I am a blue collar, do y'all use that expression in England, blue collar yes. working man? I'm a, I come from a blue collar family of, of factory workers and farmers. 
So I am very comfortable with the lower class. I came from the lower class. I didn't have running water and indoor plumbing until I went off to college, okay? And I have a great deal of faith and trust in the common man. I do not trust the elites. I do not trust the wealthy. And I do not trust the powerful. I couldn't agree more. I couldn't agree more. But I'd say in America, because of the whole immigration thing that's going on, I don't think that issue's going to be too prevalent. But over in Europe, the, just the sheer figures, I just don't see how it's going to play out over the next 30, 40 years. There's, there's going to be some kind of furore that must happen it's it, it's just such a volatile mix going on at the moment when's it gonna you know when's it gonna react well when it reaches its logical conclusion i'm telling you if you look at the history of islam you will see days in which there's full automatic weapons fire in london and it will be the your soldiers being attacked think beirut now i know that seems like an extremist radical position but do you know when I say Beirut, you may not be old enough. Beirut used to be the Paris of the Mediterranean. But then what happened? The Christians in Beirut accepted a great number of Palestinian refugees. The migration led to the fall of Lebanon. And the same thing will happen in Europe. Why? Because if you keep doing the same thing, you keep getting the same result. Duh. Do you think we'll be able to win that battle? Well, we kind of have to. Look, war is never a linear process. On the right day and time, everyone would have predicted that Hitler was going to conquer Europe. War is nonlinear. That is, it doesn't just go along in the same gradual way. There are snap and turning points. And so I think that what will happen is, is that there will suddenly be a flip in a lot of... Well, you described... Look, look at your own process. You were fine, fine, and finally, Charlie Hebdo flipped you. And by the way, you will never go back. The flip is only in one direction. Once you see the truth of Islam, you never become an apologist a year or two later. So I'm optimistic. Look, we have to win. What we have is too precious. Our, we, our society, Europe, Europe and, and America share a common society in its principles. Our ethical principles are based on the golden rule or the unitary ethic. Does the term golden rule mean anything to you in England? And then we have the intellectual principle of critical thought. Islam has dualistic ethics. A man is treated on the basis of who he is. A Muslim is treated one way, a Kafir is treated another. And there is no critical thought. There's only authoritative thought. No thought is allowed to contradict what's in the Quran, the Sirah, and the Hadith, the sacred text of Islam. So we have to save our civilization. We don't have a choice. And I think when people finally realize we don't have a choice is when this big change will come. So I'm an optimist. Yes. Yes, me too. Me too. Well, uh, to be honest with you, I'm a, I'm, a, I'm a clueless. How about that? You know, I'd like to say I am optimistic, but I think it's going to be such... I'm going to give you some advice. Yes. If you're losing a war, you're fighting the wrong war. You need to change what your attitudes and the way you fight it is. There are ways to win. We can do it. So let's end on a note of optimism. Let's do it. Let's hear that. So can you give some advice then, please? Let's say that's not, you know, an ideological, would you say? Would it, is it an information war, as Alex Jones likes to say, the info war? Well, it is an information war, and my website, Political Islam, is designed for information war. My purpose is an educator. What I want to do is to teach people what the true doctrine of Islam is, what the doctrine of jihad is, what the doctrine of the kafir is, so that people can understand that no one is making this stuff up. This is all being done according to very well-set principles that are 1,400 years old. Once you educate yourself with the facts of the matter, who Muhammad is and what the, is in the Quran, you'll become very powerful. People 
all, all of my friends, who, by the way, were normally liberals and progressives, have now given up on defending Islam. Why? Because they've engaged enough conversation with me to realize, all right, you win. And I think that anyone can become a winner if they'll just have the facts of the matter. There is, we're living in a point in history in which something very unique has happened. Before this, 20 years ago, the only people who knew anything about Islam were experts. They were college professors. And then no one knew an expert on Islam who was not a college professor or such as person. And the books that were written were very difficult to read. But now then, myself and other people have written books which are very easy to understand. So we have something on our side which has never existed before, which is the common man can now understand the doctrine of Islam. And once he understands the doctrine of Islam, he will oppose Islam. So it's an ideological war. The bullets and bombs, they're not important. The real war is the war of ideas. And it's a war of ideas to save our civilization. And we can do it if we choose to do it. Here, here. Thank you so much for your time today, Dr. Warner. I really appreciate it. Oh, thank you. <laughs> top stuff, top stuff. I'll be in touch and um, I'll let you know when this is up. I'll send you all the links and yada, yada, yada. We'll take and it Thank you there. so much, by the way. Keep doing what you're doing, man. I certainly will. I certainly will. And once again, thank you for being the inspiration for what I do. Without you, I would be, I would not know as much as I do. So I can, I'm, as I said, hey, eternally indebted. Thank you. Let, let, let's do something. There's going to be another big event in Europe. Whenever there's a big event you want to talk about, just we'll do another, we'll do another interview on it. Top man, Dr. One. I really appreciate that. I'll be in touch when needed. Thank you so much for what you're doing, man. Keep it up. Bye-bye. <laughs> Thank you. All the best. Bye-bye.